I'm Arlen Hamilton, and I'm an investor. In 2015, I launched Backstage Capital, a venture capital fund, after experiencing food and housing insecurity for most of my life. I wanted to invest in companies led by founders who are women, people of color, and LGBTQ, just like me. I have invested in more than 150 companies since 2015 and growing. I started your first million to understand what it was like to make your first million dollars, get your first million fans or downloads, and to see if there was a common thread between us all. Join me as I talk to people from all walks of life about how they got where they are, what they learned on the way, and where they're going. And for those of you who are wondering, yes, I made my first million. <laughs> Let's talk about it. They slept on me, but now they walk Because I got a million Fresh out the mud, but I'm clean and so Because I got a million I got my first million I got my first million Welcome back to your first million. It's Arlen. Ooh, today was a good day. I got to interview the one and only Stacey Abrams. This interview, oh, you're, you're in for a treat, as they say. I mean, it's, it's pretty quick. It's 30 minutes or so. It's jam-packed. I don't think I've heard an interview like this with Stacey before. If I, I tried to think if I had, but it's just more, um, more personal, you know, and, and it's just really honest and transparent, which she always is. But she is, uh, she's incredibly impressive, as, you'll, as you already know. So getting to know her a little bit better through this interview was just a lot of fun. Stacey Abrams wrote a blurb for my book, It's About Damn Time, that's on the back of the, the book, if you have the uh, physical copy or if you get the physical copy. And I remember, one thing I remember about it is a lot of times when you send your book out to people and ask them to blurb it, you know, they say something nice about the book. It's usually either it's usually written by someone else, and then they kind of say yes to it. And some, most of the time, the, the person doesn't even read the book because it's kind of takes up a lot of time to do so. And so they're being very friendly and nice by letting their name get on your book with something that would be written in their voice. And so there's that, that's kind of the standard. So there's nothing wrong with that. But I remember that Stacy said, "I'd really just like to read the book before I blurb, but I don't like to blurb without reading, and I'm going to read it." So she read every single word, and then uh, wrote her own blurb for it. And um, didn't have to, <laughs> didn't have to do that at all. So I was just so so proud of that and so happy about that. And um, yeah, I've just gotten to know her a little bit over the years, over the last couple of years, but not not super close. You know, it's just as a fangirl. Um, so this interview, everything I'm asking is off the dome, and I thought it was going to go a different way. I thought I was going to ask a lot of political and policy-driven uh, questions, but as soon as we got into it, I realized I want to deconstruct a little bit here and, and learn a little bit and understand more from her perspective. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed uh, being part of it. See you on the other side. It's great to see you. It's great to see you. Uh, you you make me happy as well, a human thank you. being. 
Um, this is for the podcast Your First Million that I do, that I do weekly. And um, I do want to talk, though, a little bit about, I mean, I just read a couple things uh, recent, like today. And they just blew my mind because you go through and look up your name and you see in one one breath it's she hung the moon she she is un, unearth you know unworld otherworldly and then the very next sentence is she's raising millions to for her own you know purposes and this and that i just want to know like as a person how do you deal with both of that because i i get a little bit of it but you there's just no way to even fathom what you must hear about yourself well i i start with the praise i appreciate the intent but i don't take myself that seriously and i do my best to always temper it with the emotions usually surrounding whatever moment i'm being you know lauded in people want avatars they want places to pour in and if I can be that for them, I appreciate it, but I don't ever forget that it's more about what they feel in the moment and not necessarily about a deep knowledge of who I am. But I'm always working to make certain that I'm meeting the expectations that my parents instilled in me that I'm doing good. Uh, for the criticism, the vile, the invective, you know, part of me says that it's, they also need an avatar, something to rail against, someone to blame, someone to hold accountable for failings that they can't quite parse out, and someone whose ideology has an ascendancy that they think threatens their very survival. And then some people just don't like me. Right, right on. <laughs> and you're, you're reaching so many people and your words have so much weight that you know, it's um, it's not flattery because none none of this is flattery, but it's almost flattering that they would give you so much time, and it, and it <laughs> proves that how powerful you are, whether or not you're you, you know wielding that power alone. Well, I, they've actually started an organization called Stop Stacy. There's what? a hashtag. Oh yeah, no, there's wow. there's an actual organization here in Georgia, and there's a Twitter account. Don't go to it, please. But, um, yeah. you know, the, I, I, I would believe that likely your listeners are not of Trolls. the, they are unlikely to be persuaded by the uh, invective and vitriol sent my way. I will say, though, what I have been, you know, I think an architect of is a response to what for decades only, you know, you can only throw pebbles at we've been able to build infrastructure and build capacity and now we can you know we can respond in kind mm -hmm. and we can respond with resources with information and with reach and that's something they just aren't used to and and there is the very real difference in how i approach my work that i am not i i am respectful and i am as best as i can be i, I try to do what I can to create space for others, but I'm not going to shrink myself metaphorically or, or reality to meet their expectations. And that is the piece I think that has been so disturbing to many. My, you know, in, in my book, um, the first nonfiction I wrote, I've said, 
you know, we are taught, especially as women or people of color, if you're in a marginalized community, we are taught to confuse humility with self-effacement. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Humility says, I can do it, but I'm not the only one. Self-effacement says, I didn't do it and I'm not capable of it. I'm not capable of self-effacement. I, I was raised to stand in my power and to stand in my place, not for me, but because I'm sometimes here holding the space for somebody else who just needs a little extra time to get here. And the minute I diminish myself, the minute I placate someone else's you know, bigotry or discrimination or just denial of my capacity by pretending that there's some truth to it, I'm giving them permission to do it to the next person. Mm -hmm. And so my responsibility isn't just to my own self you know, worth, it is that I can't be used as a justification for how others get treated. Yeah, I, I relate to that so, so much. When you were younger, like when you were a child, what kind of student were you? I'm talking before college, before, were you someone who stood up for other people or at least, you know, kind of put yourself in the, in the position to, to help others that you felt didn't have a voice or something like that? I, I tried. I, my older sister laughs at me, uh, not, not in a bad way, yeah. but you know, <laughs> I, I sometimes tried to defend, not realizing I wasn't quite big enough. Um, but <laughs> you wrote know. a check that you couldn't cash. Well, Andrea was much taller, and so I often knew that you know I had something in my savings account that could cover me. Yeah. Uh, so. <laughs> but it. no, I, I mean, I had a, I have a, a dear a dear friend in elementary school, who we hadn't seen each other since her family moved away in elementary, and she sent me a note that just touched me. She thanked me for standing up for her. She was part of the Vietnamese refugee population that came through the Gulf Coast, including where I grew up in Gulfport, Mississippi. And she reminded me that I would stand up for her when, you know, our classmates would tease her about her accent or her, as she learned English or her appearance, because this was a school that was predominantly white, had black kids, but having someone who was Vietnamese was just unusual and they didn't re react well. My instinct was to you know, defend her because I was raised by my parents to believe you take care of other people. You don't let bullies or meanness shut your mouth because when you're silent, you're complicit. And they may not have used that language, but we grew up knowing you don't let somebody do that. You yeah. stand up for others. Yeah. It's it's it shows and it, it's it's so pure and I've I've been lucky enough to see you uh, in front of and behind the scenes a little just a little bit right but to <laughs> see that one of the things that struck me so much and I I talk to people about it is like your strategy your head for strategy like nobody mistake your kindness for weakness please don't <laughs> it is strategic I mean it was I remember talking to you or listening to you talk to someone during the presidential uh, election way before anybody was chosen as democratic nominee and i had been i think it was my seventh or eighth time begging you to run for president and <laughs> you told me to hush now um because <laughs> you had a bigger plan you said you know we'll see what happens but i just remember thinking not only let me i'm gonna say this you didn't say it but i'm gonna say not only were you capable of going toe-to-toe -to -toe with anybody who was running for president, but you were on a whole different plane 
when we're talking about that. So do you think like do you think of your life and your career and the work that you do as a as a chessboard or is it or are you sort of finding yourselves and yourself in places? No, I, I think I'll say it this way. Part of it's chess and part of it's spades. Okay. You no, know, chess is it is a strategy. You are limited to this playing field. Each piece has something it can or cannot do. And you have to anticipate not only your moves, but the moves of your opponent. And you've got to be able to think multiple steps ahead. In spades, you've got to be able to do that, but with a partner. Mm. And you've got to do it knowing only what's in your hand. And in, you've got to try to read your partner to understand what they've got. You've got to anticipate what your opponents have. And you've got to be able to react to the unexpected, which can be that someone you know misplays a card or that they've got two jokers and you know, you're just sitting here with, you have no face cards. Mm -hmm. So part of it is the, the, there's a resource element to spades that doesn't exist in chess because everyone has the same material in chess, mm -hmm. but in spades, you get what the card, the, the, the cards fall as they do. And so to your point about, you know, the unexpected, I think when you only play chess, when you only think about chess, there are only so many things you can do in a chess game. I mean, it, it depends on the player and I, and I don't want to diminish that, but chess has a, there's a universe of operation. Mm -hmm. Spades has it similarly, but the variables are different. And it just requires a different way of, of thinking. And I will say that my, my friend Ben Jealous was the one who likened my approach to the world to spades. And I have found that to be quite an apt description. It is. And to go further with that, with that partner or whoever that partner represents, you have to be able to see their sick, not see their very subtle signals, not true exactly. signals, right? You have to be able to read them at the same way you would read a competitor, mm -hmm. but you on the other side of that, and that's, that's deep. I'm going to, I'm going to spend hours thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and here's the other piece, because you and I, you know, you play people in spades who talk smack, mm -hmm. and then you play people in spades who are just silent. I'm a silent player mm -hmm. because there's something that you hear in the smack talking that is either bravado or it's leading. And going back to your very first question, sometimes the vitriol is bravado, but sometimes it's, it's evidence and ammunition. And my job is to listen closely enough that I know which one is coming from which person, but that to your point that I'm also reading the subtle cues of those I need to be in league with me who don't necessarily know what they need to do next. Because as you play, when you play spades, part of what you do sometimes is try to show your partner what to do with how you play. And when you're trying to build capacity among communities that have been diminished by time and history and by legal means, sometimes you've got to show them that they can trust you, but you can't just say, trust me. You've got to demonstrate that they can put their trust in you. They can play to you and you'll protect them and get it done. Yes. Wow. Okay. I know all of us listening, we're just, I mean, I'm putting myself in that category. I'm just like, woo, okay, this is, this is deep. <laughs> and it's going to lead me to my next question. Cause I have to, when I talk to you, I have to ask it at least once, are you going to run for president at some point? You have said it. It's not like I'm asking, you know, breaking any news. You have said that that's on oh, your yes. horizon. You will I, 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 I intend to run for president one day. The question is when, and 
my, you know, people sometimes, again, mistake my intention for declaration. Like I intend to do this. I'm not declaring I'm doing it today, Mm -hmm. but I am saying that that is something that is a job that can solve so many problems for so many people. Why would anyone not want that job? Why would anyone want it? (laughs) Well, okay. Why would anyone not want that job if they think it is a possibility for them and it's within their wheelhouse? That's right. I'm not suggesting that I'm going to be president of Google one day. That Mm -hmm. is not my ambition. Mm -hmm. And I could do a lot with that. But in the world that I inhabit and in the spaces where I try to do good, that is a job that can do extraordinary good. And we've already seen it happen this year with Joe Biden. That's right. I mean, what what a difference a, a day makes, you know, it, it's <laughs> night yes. and day. And it's so different. People have already gotten used to it. Yes. People are already complacent and asking silly questions about silly things. <laughs> and I'm yes. like, can y'all go back a year? Please go back a year for a second before you ask about this man's shoes or the way he walked to the podium or the, oh, no. But anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, you spend... How much of your of your waking day talking politics? It depends on the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I differentiate between politics, which is the art of getting the things that we need in policy, and policy, which is what we should be working on. I believe that politics should be a tool for good policy, not that policy should be used to defend or, or create your politics. If you're doing it that way, you're doing it wrong. And mm-hmm. so I spend as much of my time as possible actually thinking about policy. And that's one of the reasons I created three organizations. Fair Fight defends democracy. Fair Count invests in the people who make our democracy whole. And the Southern Economic Advancement Project promulgates and supports groups that create the policies that can make this real and make it work. And for me, it's the ecosystem of conversation, not each individual piece, I'm not complete unless I'm doing all of them. Mm. And going back to the analogy, do you feel like you're where you're supposed to be in the game? Do you, does it, has it played out the way that, obviously the, you know, variables couldn't be expected, but do you feel like you're at a place in your life you want to be? I, I'm, I am in a place where I can make it work. Mm. I think we all have expectations of where we would be. I, I wrote down a plan. And my plan did not come to full fruition. Yeah. But that's not problem. That's not a. It's not a bad thing because I think sometimes we can't imagine for ourselves what you know. I I I am a very strong Christian faith. You know what what the good Lord and what the fates would have for me. I can't necessarily presume. My job is to do the best I can with what I have and try. And I'm enough of. Uh, I believe enough in you know, individual thought and individual action that I'm going to try to create the world I need to see. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, is this where I thought I'd be? No, could not have imagined this. (laughs) But can I make it work? Absolutely. Thinking about policy for a moment, because I know it's right, it's happening right now. Is there something that you want people to know who may not hear it elsewhere, who don't follow, you know, this is, you know, not Pod Save America, which I listen to every week, but there are people who are going to listen to this who don't keep up with policy or politics. Um, when it comes to where do you even start? I mean, let's start just for a second. The the, the presidential election and, and the, the two seats that Georgia help, helped us win. Um, most people w- would say if they know anything about what happened, 
that you, the work that you did, the foundation you laid, and that of many others who you have called out, kind of saved the nation from the hold that we were possibly in. Another way of saying that is we could be in a very different reality today if the work that you did didn't exist. Do you think about that? Oh, absolutely. I grew up in the deep South. For many people, the four years of Trump was an anomaly. Hmm. For me, that was history. It was daily. It was how I grew up. Being led by people who often diminished or intentionally destroyed your opportunities, someone who denigrated the whole of your humanity and saw no reason to do right by the people who needed him most. You know, I grew up in, I mean, I, we had good governors when I was uh, growing up in Mississippi, but we had some bad actors who did things that were never designed for, for me to flourish, for my family to flourish. And so, yes, I think, I think often that we sometimes not just, it's not just complacency. There's an arrogance to our assumption of democracy that it is sustainable without our effort and that eventually it will correct itself. Democracy is not a self-corrective device. It is an idea that requires the active participation of everyone who has that same common belief system. And the moment we're in right now is fracturing because we don't share a common belief about what democracy should look like in a diverse society. I think you've answered this in a way, but I want to make it, I, I'm curious about it, the way you view it. Do you feel that you're, this is a calling for you? Do you feel compelled in a way that's kind of dragging you? Or do you feel, I, it's not or, maybe an and, you know, a blended. Do you, what I'm trying to get at is, do you, do you derive joy from this work? Or is it, do you feel like you are, if you were to slow down, a lot would be at stake and you don't have that, you're not afforded that opportunity. I feel the constant urgency of this work because I know what sits on the other side of silence. But I also am privileged that I get to write novels and write works of nonfiction, that I've been an entrepreneur and I can help other entrepreneurs reach their goals, that I help train young people who have similar ambitions but don't know where to start. The fullness of the life I get to live is what makes me content. It's what gives me energy and it's what propels me. But always at the forefront is that all that I enjoy because I'm an American, because I've gotten these opportunities, that my responsibility for preservation is heightened because I know what's on the other side. I know what can happen if we don't do it. And when you know better, you are responsible for doing better. Mm. So you're, you're a good egg is what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> you're a good person. That, I, I'm, I'm who Robert and Carolyn, I think, wanted me to be. I'm trying. Wonderful. Um, just to touch real briefly, and I say it just because I know you talk about it so much and we can, there's all sorts of research we can do, but what is that one thing we need to know right now about the voter suppression uh, uh, law that's now law? So SB 202, which is the law in Georgia, is not alone. We are talking about it because Georgia has long been the seat of voter suppression, but we're not the only actors. 
Texas is moving two bills right now, HB6, which is similar to what they did in Georgia, is moved out of committee, I think, this morning. And it's happening across the country. But here's what voter suppression looks like. Voter suppression can be identified. Does it limit your ability to register and stay on the rolls? Does it impede your ability to cast a ballot? And does it put into question your ability to have that ballot counted? Every single law that's under consideration does one of those three things. In Georgia, it impedes your registration because it continues systems that we were able to fix most of it, uh, but it still permits purging of voters. And that wasn't in the law, but that's just a general issue I have with Georgia law. Let's put that one aside. Yeah. Um, but for personally, this, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. But for these bills, these bills restrict access to casting your ballot. Now you'll hear, oh, they put it into law that you can vote on the weekends. No, Georgia always had one mandatory Saturday and most of the counties or sorry, the counties that contain 60% of the population of Georgia allowed you two Saturdays, and many of them also added a Sunday. By putting it into law, that wasn't giving people something they didn't have in for 60% of Georgians. It gave it to others who needed to have it too. And so I don't begrudge that, but I begrudge the characterization that sounds like they did something magical and new. Number two, it changes the hours of operation. It used to be that there was a presumption that you got to go and vote from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Now it's in the law that it's nine to five. Now imagine your bank telling you, you can't use the ATM, you can't, you, you, you only can come between nine to five when for years they let you come for two hours before, two hours after. Mm -hmm. It makes it easier to process if you get to do it before you have to go do something else. And so they said, well, we standardized it, what they did was give counties the authority to restrict access to your voting times. That is not an increase, that is a restriction. The fact that you have to include ID when you mail in your ballot, you either have to put your driver's license number, your social security number, or you have to send a picture of your ID in. That is a, an invitation to theft, mm. because it's gonna be in a big old envelope that says absentee ballot and absentee ballot application. If people know what to look for, a smart or you know just a semi you know intelligent unscrupulous will well. know to look for those envelopes if you want to go and harvest all the information you need because it's going to have your name, your address, your date of birth, and identifying information that you can use to open credit cards in somebody else's name. Mm. That's the problem. So those are just a few of the examples, but it also gives Republicans this unfettered power to now remove boards of elections that they disagree with and. Some are sort of dismissing it, but this is happening across the country. And Arlen, I want to highlight this because when if people remember during the back and forth when Michigan almost denied certification because one person on the board refused to vote for it and they were able to overcome and get it certified, this would allow them to change the boards, mm. meaning in the hands of, to your point, unscrupulous people, you could change the boards and decertify elections. You could decide that you don't like who won and you're gonna change the outcome simply by refusing to participate. Decertification has an effect. And this is a power grab by Republicans who are responding to the bald-faced, unadulterated lies of Donald Trump and the insurrectionists who stormed our Capitol and murdered people. That's the problem we have. If I'm listening to this and I'm 
outraged because I'm learning something new, what do I do? Where, where do I go to help? Go to stopjimcrow2.com. So stopjimcrow, the numeral two.com. There are those who you know push back on the fact that we call it Jim Crow. And let me tell you why, just very, very quickly. People remember Eyes on the Prize sort of as a highlight reel. But what folks forget is that when it came to segregation by or Jim Crow's application to voting, there was never once a law after the adoption of the 15th Amendment that explicitly prohibited Black people from voting. What it said was that you couldn't vote unless you paid a poll tax or passed a literacy test or counted the number of beans in a jar, you know, all of those things. But it had a grandfather clause. And that said that if your grandfather was eligible to vote before the Civil War, that those laws don't apply to you. Well, since Black people in the South by law were not permitted to vote, then that meant that they could never meet use the grandfather clause. The only people who could were white people. Mm -hmm. And so if you were white, you were eligible to be exempted from all of those laws. If you were black, you were held accountable. And so Jim Crow does not require that they explicitly target black people or brown people. It's that they target black behavior and brown behavior. And that's what led to these changes because black and brown people voted at higher rates than we ever have. Young people voted at higher rates than we ever have. And so these bills are targeted at those very communities. And that is exactly what Jim Crow did. It targeted people based on their race and their color. And that is untenable. And that's what we have to fight. Mm. Okay. So is it, I have a serious question because I don't know. <laughs> is it possible for you to run for president now in advance <laughs> of eight years? Is it, I'm just I'm putting it out there. We, we have an amazing president of the United States. I was going to say in advance, advance. I, I, I'm focused on making sure we've got a democracy in eight years. So let, let's circle back then. Okay. Yes. Well, I appreciate all this information. We're, we're going to this website. We're going to help you, uh, because it can't just be you. That's the whole point. It can't just be you. You, you are the, the example and the case study, but it can't just be you. Couple, couple very brief questions. One is, um, uh, can you introduce me to Rachel Maddow? I will do my best. Okay. Fantastic. You heard it here folks. Okay. Second is what is your greatest ambition today? That we have, and I mean this sincerely, that we have full voting rights in this country that are not determined by geography or by race, because if we have full democracy, it doesn't guarantee us that we get everything else we want, but it guarantees that we have a voice in deciding. And if we can level that playing field, if we, for the first time as a nation, actually achieve that responsibility, everything else is imminently more possible. And you think we get there in our lifetime? Yes. I'm not going anywhere. Wonderful. Well, you have our support and admiration and um, really appreciate you. Thank you so much for this time and for this interview. Really appreciate Thank you, you so much, Harlan. Thank you, Arlen, for always being in the right place and being so kind to me whenever you're there. Of course, of course. Thank you. Take care.
guys, Arlen. Thanks for listening to this episode. So I would love to keep up with you online. You can find me at Arlen Was Here on Instagram and on Twitter. That's A-R-L-A-N Was Here. I cannot wait to continue this conversation with you. Your First Million is produced by Anna Eichenauer, executive producer Arlen Hamilton. Associate producer, Chacho Valadez. Theme song is used by permission by the artist, Tobey Nguigwe.